Hey everyone, this is the final episode of the season. So there'll be no podcast episodes released for the rest of June. If you want to hear some what you'll learn in the break, we're curating the best of for all the seasons of what you'll learn, whether they be book reviews or author interviews. So if this is something you want to check out, head to whatyouwillearn.com slash best. Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. Today, we are doing our end of season, best of episode, Dead Sober. <laughs> Mate, that sounded like a painful <laughs> dead sober from you. Well, five minutes. Well, you're obviously not drinking. I was asking if you got a beer here. You said no. You said you got straight. You said, yeah, I got yeah, straight. I've got and some. then I look over at my Pepsi Max and I've already finished it. <laughs> it's empty. It's empty. I'm not going to be drinking straight tonight. This is our sixth best of. So, obviously, at the end of each uh, calendar year, we do like a best of for the first half of the season. And then at the end of every season, we do a best of. And the first five, a few of them have got pretty wild. Very wild. Yeah. <laughs> Almost too wild in some of them. Definitely too wild. I think the third one... Uh, we didn't even remember the end of the episode. Mate, some of them become but, completely incoherent. Yeah, yeah, and then you posted it when we were in that state. So, the next day when we were listening it, um, no one go back. We yeah. were just... It was bad. a mess. Yeah. It was an absolute mess. But this should be nice and clean, I reckon. Oh, I think so. So, mate, so three years... Uh, uh, it's been a good three years, man. I think season three was definitely a big uptick. I think we both got a lot more serious, both put a lot more investment and both started to think, uh, I guess, beyond just hit record, hit stop and upload, which is what we tended to do at the start. We made it easy as possible and we gradually increased the, the amount of effort. And I think it's a, that's a positive. Yeah, there's been a lot of tinkering along the way. At Ooh, the yeah. very, very start, it was purely just about us. The whole thing was just a process of us retaining our knowledge in books. Didn't think anyone would listen and uh, slowly but surely, as we've realized people have been listening, we've been thinking about what's the best way of um, other people hearing it mm. and uh, really curating the content just around that only, really. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And it's an always, a, always a work in progress, always thinking how can we uh, improve and do better. Uh, but I think we're, we're definitely heading in the right direction, that's for sure. So basically, the, the plan from here is uh, we have our usual month off. I don't know why. We just arbitrarily decided to do it each year, and it's the third time, so it's a tradition now. Take June off. July, we come back with five juggernauts. The juggernaut month, there'll be some, some serious, serious books in there. Mm-hmm. And uh, for the rest of this episode, we're going to go through our top 10 uh, books, top 10 favorite books that we did this year. So since the best of 2018, where we recapped the first half of the season, uh, we're going to do our top 10 each of the uh, of the second half of the season, and I think this for our first end of season episode, it's clear some books uh, that I've got in my list you clearly don't like, and mm. uh, some in your list I clearly think are stinkers. Yeah, and that's a uh, good segue into number ten. <laughs> <laughs> number ten for me, keep going by Austin Cleon. The uh, the last book we did, look, it's not a not a phenomenal book by any means, but I did like. Uh, the idea that, hey, you know, the, fir- the first book we did of his, Steal Like an Artist, where it's about everyone injecting more creativity into their work. And this one was all about, look, it, it's bloody hard. Whatever, whenever you try and stuff, uh, you're trying side projects or you're doing some kind of business or you're some kind of, you know, in trying to pursue some kind of creative endeavor, it gets tough. And there's going to be times where you want to quit. And so this is all about keep going. I think I probably like the the title and the idea of it more than the, the 10 chapters and the execution, but the, yep. just that idea is, yeah. Mate, I, I was just realizing we've, uh, we've lined up an interview with him, you know? <laughs> <laughs> 
and um, an interview coming with him season four, yeah. Yeah, and uh, we're actually going to be recording in the break. And if this is the most recent episode, he is probably if, he, if he's <laughs> going to check out our podcast, this is going to be the first thing he's going to be hearing us. Well, me, mate, me I'm, personally, I'm in my top ten. So oh, fuck, I'm writing on it. <laughs> Sorry, also, <laughs> I, I think your books are great. Number nine. <laughs> Yeah, so your your number 10 comes uh, a lot later in the list, so we'll, we'll hold off on your number 10. So number nine for me is Life 3.0. It doesn't feature in your list at all. But I really think it is, it's very speculative, the whole idea of artificial intelligence. If the speculative notion that the idea of artificial general intelligence is even just slightly right, every single person's life is going to probably change from uh, beyond com- comprehension. So, just to set it up, um, you know, the title. So, he says that stage one, life 1.0, it was simple and it was biological. So, it can survive, it can replicate, but it can't redesign its software and it can't redesign its hardware. So, you know, that's like most um, simple biological things. They're born, uh, they reproduce, but that's sort of the extent of it. Life 2.0, he says, is cultural and same deal, it can survive, it can uh, reproduce itself. Uh, it can't design its own hardware, but it can design its own software. So that's like humans where we are now in that we can change our software, we can change our thoughts, we can learn new things, we can develop new skills. And then he says Life 3.0, that's technological. And it, so it can design its own software and it can redesign its own hardware as well. The really interesting point, which is somewhat scary that he talks about in the book is the idea of goals and sub-goals. So we might design in this artificial intelligence to have certain goals, but then the artificial intelligence might get sub-goals that actually are counterintuitive and completely um, uh, against what our original plan was. So if you think you just laid out the three levels of life, like Life 1.0 is all about reproduction and then all of a sudden Life 2.0 we invent condoms. So it's against mm. what the goals of Life 1.0 is um, completely, right? Mm. So whatever goals we plan in AI, we don't know what it's what it's going to end up with. So for example, another idea of a sub-goal might be you might program an AI to save as many sheep as possible from this big bad wolf that's eating up all the sheep. But for the AI to be the most effective at its job, then it can't destroy itself. So it actually creates the sub-goal of self-preservation so then it might just turn off its own off switch so humans can't turn off this AI. <laughs> Did my voice just go really deep? Yeah, mate, that got real weird there for I a second. I think it an AI. Like, <laughs> <laughs> just, your voice just gone sub-goal. We're back on. We're back on. Yeah, that, well, that's the thing actually, is like... Back on. <laughs> <laughs> that's the mate. thing is we think like, uh, you know, we might have the best intentions and that the goal sounds uh, logical, a good goal to pursue. Uh, but we don't realize like how do we actually get to that goal um, and they might find their own ways of getting to the goal and that the things that they do along the way uh, could be not what we expect. Yeah, ex machina. Oh yeah, good good, good little film. Mm. Uh, number nine for me was The Four Agreements by Don Miguel Ruiz and a nice little sort of simple book, a simple message. There are four things that you can do in that we've made all these agreements with ourselves in that you know the things we say, the things we do, the things we think, uh, the things we say to ourselves uh, and a lot of these agreements that we sort of made along the journey weren't necessarily consciously chosen by us. So, we're saying we almost need to wipe the slate clean and we can start afresh with just these four important agreements. 
So he speaks about how we are domesticated like you would domesticate, you know, a sheep. And this all happens unwillingly as we grow up. We take on all of this baggage, um, you know, of society, what they put on us. And then we end up, as you said, making these agreements that really don't serve us at all. So this is some Caltech or Altech or Jaltech, I forget what it was, wisdom from... Oh, Toltec. 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 I didn't know where you... <laughs> Cal- Caltech's a service station, I think. That's where it stopped I think it's off. it's also a, a college in the US. Yeah, stopped off there for a Pepsi Max earlier. <laughs> but the four big ones I think that we can take and are really relevant to us today are, uh, are amazing. So the first one is being impeccable with your word. So everything that comes out of your mouth, make sure that you absolutely mean it and it is the absolute truth because once you start veering off track and talking bullshit, it's, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's, a, it's a quick way to the bottom. Yeah, that goes for both the things you say to the others but also very importantly, the things that you say to yourself as well. The second one is don't take it personally. So everybody's doing things, often they're mainly, they're mainly thinking about themselves and they've got their own self-interest at heart. And you might think they're doing it deliberately despite you. It probably has got nothing to do with you. So you've got to really not take things personally and realize that you know everybody's got their own shit going on and they're probably not deliberately trying to inflict pain on you. Mm. The third one is don't make assumptions. So everyone out there, they've got their own completely different narrative going on in their head. So when you start making assumptions about what's going on in their head, it's probably based on the assumptions from your narrative. So, in every case, you're better off asking questions to actually get clear on everyone else's perspective. And the fourth one is always do your best. And so, realize that you you can only do your best. If you put too much pressure on yourself to be perfect, you're probably going to fall below your best. And also, you you shouldn't just settle for doing just okay. You always want to do your best and realize that, hey, if today wasn't so good, wake up tomorrow, try your best again. So it's a really good book. In retrospect, it probably should have snuck in my top 10. It's really efficient. Uh, it's a very small book. You could smack out in, in an hour's read or something, which is you know books, the type of book yeah, we, we love. Yeah. And it packs some messages that really stick with you for, for a while. For sure. Mate, number eight on your list, uh, we'll hold off because it comes a bit higher on mine. Number eight for me was uh, Digital Minimalism by Cal Newport. Perhaps a bit surprising because I didn't love the book. Uh, as a as a complete package, you know, as a three hundred page package, it probably wasn't phenomenal, but just a few core messages in there, I thought were absolutely vital. I really loved. Um, I think this is a book where we, an episode where we got the most potential out of the episode we possibly mm. got because we tied his other books in there, which was Deep Work and So Good They Can't Ignore You, and going into digital minimalism, it, it ties up into an incredible package. Um, all of us out there. Unfortunately, we are reliant on a lot of technology. Uh, if you're not aware of it, it's very easy to just pull out your Facebook every time you're bored or every mm. time you're that little bit uncomfortable f- with people. Um, and it's a really bad habit you could possibly get into. So this really does outline the huge problems with technology and our absolute reliance on it and uh, gives you some good strategies for jumping out of the uh, the, the oven. Yeah, both in the, uh, the work sense that... Uh, you know, we we did the book Deep Work as well and doing deep work is absolutely vital to improving your skills and because of our technological addiction, it's very easy to pull out of the deep work by just, oh, we'll quickly check whatever that email just came in or I just got a Facebook notification, I'll just quickly check and I'll get back to work but that's definitely uh, detracting from your deep work and then as you say, on the on the personal level as well, you know, we're not bored anymore. If you're with 
you're sitting with mates and you quickly pull out the phone, that completely detracts from the interpersonal relationships that you're building. So uh, digital minimalism, I probably wouldn't read the book again, but I definitely listened to an episode again. I think it was a pretty good app. Number seven is The Four Tendencies by Gretchen Rubin. Man, that doesn't get in your list, but uh, I think it definitely gets in my top 10 for sure because uh, I did like the book and I liked that it was a, it was a pretty simple um, metrics in that there was like a, a two-by-two matrix based on how do you respond to external expectations? Do you meet them or do you rebel against them? And how do you respond to internal expectations? Do you meet them or do you go against them? And so based on the, that two-by-two, two, it puts you into four different categories, either an upholder, an obliger, a questioner, or a rebel. Mm. So I like that, you know, once, firstly, you know, once you know your own tendency, you can set up things to help you move toward good behavior and away from bad behavior. So if you realize that you really need, you know, those external expectations in order for you to do something, then you can set your world up to have external external expectations. So maybe if, you know, you want to go to the gym more, if you need external expectations, then go with a mate and make them make you accountable. So that's on the, the personal level, but also then it helps you to understand other people as well. So once you can identify other people's tendencies, you can help set their world up as well. So if you've got a family member who, you know, they rely on external expectations, then you can put in a little bit of effort to make them feel accountable. Uh, so, you know, firstly, recognizing your own, secondly, recognizing other people. Mm. Yeah, I thought that book was... Uh, you loved it. I thought it was a real sneaker. I wouldn't sneaker. say I loved it, but it was top 10, yeah. Yeah, I'd be my <laughs> bottom five, I'd say, about all the books I've ever read. Oh, it's um, <laughs> No, it really is. But I really liked uh, Gretchen Rubin as a person. I think she, uh, in the interview we uh, had with her, she's an absolute weapon. Um, for me, personally, yeah, the book, book did nothing. Yeah, fair enough. Number six, for me, Intelligent Investor. So this book is probably the most popular investing book i'd say benjamin graham he was the mentor of warren buffett warren buffett is all about benjamin graham yeah warren buffett was a pretty good investor he was a pretty bad, good was investor. Was yeah. so this is all about value in investing and rules and frameworks that you can follow um to get the best returns when it comes to the stock market goes down two roads you can do the be the enterprising or active investor or being the defensive investor I mean, there's a lot of fat in the book for just the, for Joe Blows like us, but there's a few really good pieces of gold, of gold you can take away and uh, um, you know understand a lot more about when it comes to investing. So one, for example, is understanding that good assets can be overpriced. So anything you're investing in, whether it be stocks or property, they're meant to really have an intrinsic value. So for stocks, it might be a, a P on E value. For property, it might be something like the rental yield. So understanding these metrics, you can understand when the whole collective psychology of the population is just getting a little bit overhyped and uh, bubbles are forming or, or you know, conversely, you're finding an opportunity to actually jump in there and, uh, and, and buy something. Yeah, there are definitely things that obviously are like a, seem like they're good assets and they're, they're a good thing that you should buy. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you should buy them at any price. You know, just because it's a good asset, it can also be a good asset, but also overpriced. So, not necessarily something you should buy. Yeah, he uses the example of Michael Jordan. Like Michael Jordan's the best basketballer ever, right? And then, so that doesn't mean the Chicago Bulls were ready to pay $300 million for him. There is a price that it's way too overvalued. And mm. I think a lot of people forget that. They just think some asset is just uh, intrinsically so good that 
there's no price that's too high for it. Um, and before you jump in there, mate, and uh, have your little criticism for the book, I'm going to j- beat you to it. <laughs> I'll admit there is um, there is a real. I'm going to. We've got a, almost too many effects, and we just make up between ourselves the Harry Potter effect, the Psycho effect, and so on. But this is a real intellectual masturbation effect, I think, where it's uh, in terms of applicability in where I am right now, I'm, I'm not like investing isn't a big thing in my life, but you just feel like you're intelligent um, reading this and understanding this, these areas. That's good, Matt. I actually wasn't going to say anything, oh, but I'm yeah. glad I left a bit of space for you to. Um to drop that in because yeah i think that's important it was for me it was sort of like interesting stuff but not very practically relevant right now um but yeah i was just going to move on but um oh, i think yeah. it's good good to balance it out yeah definitely <laughs> so that was your number six uh number six for me was this is marketing by seth godin uh his newest book which came out uh november last year i don't know his 19th or, or 20th book uh probably not in my top five seth godin books uh but uh it was there was some good stuff in there the biggest takeaway for me was how vital it is to understand the difference between brand marketing and direct marketing. So he says that brand marketing makes the magic. It's something that can't be measured though whatsoever. It's just almost what people feel about your brand. Whereas direct marketing, he says that makes the phone ring. It's completely action oriented. It means you want something to do. You want someone to do something. So that's sort of the big key of the book is firstly, no what the difference between the two is and secondly is to be very strong on what are you doing this piece of marketing that you're about to do is it brand is it direct because you need to treat both very differently the thing i really liked about this is marketing is the riff about the quarter inch drill bit Mm. which a lot of marketers pull out he says uh the harvard marketing professor theodore levitt famously said people don't want to buy a quarter inch drill bit they want a quarter inch hole Mm. but seth is much deeper than this idiot harvard marketing (laughs) professor isn't he Uh, he says no one actually wants the hole they want the feeling that comes after the hole they want the feeling that the sister comes over and gives him a pat on the back for um you know putting up that bookshelf and then no one else thought he could do it that's (laughs) i get really specific it almost sounds personal doesn't it It probably is deep down Yeah, yeah exactly or even just the satisfaction of knowing that they completed a diy job themselves so that's the actual thing they're buying when they're marketing to them yeah exactly it's very um vital to consider that not just what's the surface level uh product they're getting or what's the surface level service you're offering them you got to go a few layers deeper than that and what what are they truly trying to get What's the, the feeling that they're trying to get when they make that purchase? Number five, which is five for me, is the five love, the five love languages. Uh, Man, what, that was weird for you to say love. Did you just have an awkward... I nah. Know. I was, no, I said number five for me is the five. Oh, okay. I said five I just uncomfortable five times in a row. Love. No, yeah. I'm, I'm very comfortable <laughs> saying love. Okay. I'm very, very comfortable. Um, mate, it's a, it is a big thing. Love is a primary human need. Mm. Uh all the books we do, we don't venture into this kind of soft kind of stuff. But if we were brutally honest, it is actually a pretty big deal. When it comes to understanding how to uh, get the most out of a relationship for you and your partner, I'd say both of us in understanding, we're about a one out of 10. Yeah, that's probably generous, yeah. Point six or something previously. (laughs) But this book will get you up to a four out of 10 uh, and above probably the rest of the population about how to maintain good relationships. So the whole idea is that he uses the analogy of keeping 
your spouse's or your partner's emotional love tank full just to keep your uh, relationship in good maintenance just like you would your car. Yeah, so he says that there's five different love languages, so five different things that we need to feel loved and the issue comes with you thinking that your love language is the same as your partner's love language. So you might think that you're showing love but they're not feeling that love. So the five are words of affirmation, quality time, receiving gifts, acts of service and physical touch. So you might have, uh, I'll try and make this up on the fly but say you've got uh, your... uh, thing is receiving gifts and their thing is quality time so you might think oh receiving gifts makes me feel loved i'm just going to buy them lots of presents i'm going to come home every night with flowers i'm going to buy nice fancy jewelry for them but they're thinking oh this is just working all the time to make money uh to buy me things i'm not really getting any quality time so you might think that you're showing them love but they're not receiving that love whatsoever it's a really big deal because making them feel loved is is really one of the whole goals of a relationship like for example it might be uh, you might be buying gifts, like you were saying, or it might just be physical touch. So you might be um, blowing tens of thousands of dollars. <laughs> oh, so you, <laughs> you were saying physical touch and then blowing. <laughs> mate, don't, you you got to get your head so, out of the yeah, bloody gutter, yeah. mate. But you might be blowing all these cash, <laughs> you know, and all, all, all he or she wants is a nice little cuddle in the morning mm. and then that fills up the tank every day. Um, so, you know, reading this book is a really big deal just to recognize... Uh, you know, in your current relationship and future relationships, how to best be there for it. Yeah, and I think it can extend beyond just the uh, specific uh, immediate, you know, love loving partner to other relationships of family and, and friends as well. Mate, are you going to claim that or are you... Yeah, that's, I think we spoke about that in the episode. No, we spoke about <laughs> it this morning with our... We had a coffee with Shani Tims and that's what yeah. our... A friend of ours from Keep It Simple, Shani. So you're gonna you're gonna steal her you're gonna steal her great insight, are you? Oh, I must be misremembering. Oh, no, that was good. Thanks, Shani. Yeah. Uh, number four, man. Yeah, my number four is uh, Atomic Habits by James Clear. So uh, I was actually pleasantly surprised to like this one. I for for whatever reason going in, it was one of those massive books that was very very popular, and I thought oh, I'm not going to like this. It's uh, I try to go a bit, you know against the mainstream but i was surprised it was actually very very good so there are four stages to any behavior there's the cue the craving the response and the reward so the first cue is that initial trigger where you see something or think something and that starts this uh this process towards taking some kind of action so i really like how he speaks about how you need to self-assess your own automatic daily habits so the only way to uh get good habits into your life is to, or get rid of the bad habits is just simply to become conscious of them mm. because once things become automatic because most of our day is automatic for every single person, you stop thinking about them and you can't really optimize for something better. So what he recommends in the book is to actually track what you actually do throughout the day just mm. so you know where you have opportunities to do, do things better. Yeah, it's important to recognize what things are you know, the start of this process. What things are those cues around you? Uh, the next thing is the the craving. And so that's the motivational force behind the habit. So first you've been cued, next you're thinking, oh yeah, I've seen that, now I want it. The next thing after that is the response. So obviously that's the actual part of taking the action. And then the final bit is the reward you get after. So just the, the good feelings of, you know, eating that cheeseburger feels good or sitting down relaxing on the couch feels good. 
or also going to the gym and working out feels good. They're sort of the the uh, rewards that you get after taking the action. Mm. I'm getting more and more convinced that hab- habits are such a big deal for everything that you do. Your work habits um, will lead to how well you do at work, uh, to your health habits, to your financial habits. Habits are basically everything. You don't want to be relying too much on willpower because willpower uh, is a limited mm. resource every single day. Most definitely. He caps it off. Um, at the end of each section as to how to either create a new good habit or how to break a bad habit. So say for the, to create a good habit, you need to make the cue obvious, you need to make the craving attractive, you need to make the response easy and you need to make the reward satisfying. So I think I spoke about in the 200th episode, uh, uh, I was thinking probably back to this where um, my reading habit was slowing down and not as strong because I stopped looking at episode downloads and uh, that's basically the reward for reading, uh, which I was previously linking it to. So that just popped up in my head then. Ooh, yeah. So now I'm looking back at the downloads, getting yeah. a little endorphin hit, and then uh, the reading is that more rewarding as well. So yeah. the habit's much easier. I changed the password on you, mate, but you cracked it. Yep. After digital minimalism, you you know, you changed all your passwords, had certain people have access to certain platforms. So I thought oh, I'll do the right thing here and, and uh, change the password. Mate, I've mate, hacked you. my way back into uh, every bit of social media. <laughs> Too funny. I'll put a few barriers up, but it's... Uh, <laughs> They're coming down. <laughs> the barriers just got torn down. Anyway, That's so funny. So that was my number seven. I also love the book. Uh, popular books, a lot of the time, do disappoint. I think we both thought, um, uh, you know, Subtle Art was, was a bit shit. of a stinker. And, yeah. uh, you know, after that one, we probably put this one into that category. So this is a great book for everyone to read, especially if you haven't read too many books. Mm. I think this would be our... like This would be like a seven habits of... Maybe not not to that level, but if this is one of our first books we'd ever read, we'd, I think, rate this extremely highly. So, uh, yeah, everyone should go out there and buy this one, I think. Yeah, I definitely agree. If it was in the first 20 or 30 books I read, it would probably be like in my top five of all time. Yeah. Just But but now, you know, having read it after 200 other books, you know, it's a little bit, you know, repetitive in terms of the stuff we've heard before. But if you're just starting out, this is, this is a phenomenal one and it could be a real game changer. Number four which is my number four, is Factfulness. It was your number five. This book gets rid of the myth or the whole book, the whole purpose of the book is really to get rid of the myth that the whole world is getting worse um, and applying factfulness to your daily, day-to-day lives. Like we are very irrational with a lot of things in the ways that we view the world. Yeah, most certainly. And I really like some of the, the cognitive biases that he, he went through. So like say one is the, the gap instinct in that we all want to divide the world into two nice even buckets when he says that that's not necessarily true and that you know there's not just like the rich and the poor or the the uh, developed and the and the underdeveloped the first world and the third world he says that that's uh having two very clear distinct uh, buckets with a big gap between them is is way off so yeah i think the, the main point of the book is the these cognitive biases uh I re- what I really loved in the book is within those chapters is the mental models he throws up and these have really stuck with me since then and, and it has come up once or twice since reading the book where it's actually helped me. You know, things like the understanding the world levels, like for example, level one, two, three and four and how many people are in each level. So level one, that's $2 a day. There's 1 billion people. Level two, there's uh, two to eight dollars a day. That's three billion people. Level three is eight to thirty-two dollars a day. That's two billion people. And us, we're level four, and we're on above thirty-two dollars a day, and that's one billion people. 
Yeah. And one of the big cognitive biases is the view from the top. Like we're all on $32 a day. We think the rest, they're all just poor. But to them, the difference between level one, which is 2 bucks a day to $8 a day, is the difference between you know buying antibiotics or your sister's daughter dying? Mm, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it is. Um, you know, nice and comfortable up here on level four, which I think probably most people listening to this would be if you're you know earning thirty two dollars a day or more. And we just look down at everybody else below us, and we think they're all the same. But when you're actually down there, uh, it's very very different. Those three different levels are vital, and obviously going from level one to level two and then from level two to level three are massive, massive differences in, uh, in living standard. And he has a really visual, visual analogy of how someone could actually climb up the, the mountain in, in that regard. Uh, the other mental model, man, I really liked was the pin code to the world, which again is just a really small thing, but it's 1114. So there's 1 billion people in the Americas, 1 billion in Europe, 1 billion in Africa, and 4 billion people in Asia. Yeah, I think that ties into the... Um the feeling smart into intellectual masturbation side of things. But yeah, it's good, well, it's, good uh, it. well, there's, I think there's some value in our understanding yeah. that. Yeah. Man, I like the size instinct. <clears throat> so one thing you talked about is, you know, you know in the headlines, 4.2 million babies died each year. That sounds like a, a mm. shitload of babies. And, uh, you know, any time you know, that we drop a big number like that, uh, it has a massive impact. We think, oh my goodness, this is a major problem. But he says, if we actually sort of take a step back and either, you know, we compare the numbers to either something else similar, like he talks about comparing people that die by bears compared to people who die by um, domestic violence, or the other thing is I like compare it over time. Like say, instead of saying 4.2 billion, 4.2 million babies died this year, if we look back 60 years ago, there was 14, 14 million babies. So mm. comparing it over time makes the number look very, very different. And she talks about how we really struggle to hold the idea of better and bad at the same time. So, you know, all those 4.2 billion babies dying, that's a bloody bad thing. No one's going to mm. deny that. But it is much better when you mm. compare it to the overall trend in the world. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I thought it was a great book, man. So as we said, number four for you, number five for me. It was one of only two that we were pretty close on. The rest mm. of our list were very, very different. Yeah, because there are a lot of things that we are over a, bit, a, bit, a little bit sensational about and don't understand how much better the world is getting because small incremental improvements isn't news. So none of the news coverage is going to cover it, whereas those big bad events are the only things that, that gets covered. So you know our bias is to just look at the news and just get the feeling that everything's getting worse. Um, and But things are do require our attention and are alarming in the world. Things like climate change, threat of nuclear war, uh, financial collapse and things like that. So should we actually uh, devote our attention to the things that are mm. real risks? Mm. Yeah, it was, an, it was definitely an interesting book that definitely um, shined a light on a very different way of thinking, I guess. So it was, I thought it was a very worthwhile read, that's for sure. Mate, so we're into our top three now. Interestingly enough, I was just having a look at our top three. Normally, we're pretty pretty close mate this time two of your top three don't even feature in my top 10 and then for me one of my top three isn't in your top 10 and then one of my three is your number 10 so only just mm. sneaks in so wow. very interesting very interesting that is interesting and you've uh, publicly declared you didn't like my number three at all yeah <laughs> but i think it's a good one number three for me is lessons of history so will and ariel durant uh, both won the Pulitzer Prize for this so they're historians so they've compressed all of history 
uh, and all of the lessons from history, and they've written textbooks and textbooks and textbooks down into 100 pages and down into six lessons. So this is where I think the real value of books is, right? Like two people's whole life dedication um, that you can access for 25 bucks, right? So the, the six lessons are a big deal, and I think they do have practical value. Number one is morals and history. The second is biology and history. The third is character and history, religion and history, economics and history. And a really big one is the growth and decay of civilizations. Because over history, there has been civilizations just like ours that have grown and prospered and they've decayed. So it's really important to take what we can from these lessons of history to not make the same mistakes and actually evolve into you know a better version of of our ancestors. I think for me, uh, I never really gave this a fair crack. I think it was just like, a, it was a bit tough to read and that it was it was written a long time ago. It was things that I was definitely not very familiar with in terms of uh, the different things throughout history. So I never really gave it a fair crack. I just sort of switched off. So I reckon if I gave it another read in five years, I'd probably like it more. Uh, number three for me was The Definitive Book of Body Language by Barbara Pease. And this was, uh, goes to the, the fact that uh, this... Uh, Dude called Albert, I don't know, some pioneer researcher in, uh, in body language, but, but he determined that, look, the impact of a message is 7% verbal, so that the words that you say, 38% is vocal, so how you say it, and 55% is nonverbal, so that's the body language element of it. So, you know, combined, the things you say and how you say it is less important than your body language. Hmm. So I thought that was, uh, it was vital. And in this book, it gave us a sort of an insight into, you know, what are people doing with their hands, their legs, uh, their arms, uh, their eyes, their face. It was all like these, these 10 or 12 different things where you can analyze different people's body language to look beneath their words and what are they actually thinking. It kind of opens up a whole entire universe, really, that, that you're not really aware of until you read a book like this. It's in the direction of, but maybe not as... Uh, not as different as, say, you know, if you go scuba diving in the ocean and you just see completely yeah. different things and there's a whole uh, different world down there because, as you said, everyone is communicating unconsciously all the time. So, after reading this and if you start getting more familiar with these cues that people are giving up constantly, you can really understand what people are really thinking uh, behind the the bullshit words that might they might be spitting out. Yeah, most definitely. I just uh, in in summary wanted to pull out one specific lesson here, and they they went through uh, the different things that people might do that could indicate that they're lying. So obviously, just in isolation, it doesn't mean much. But as part of the broader package of what they're doing, these could be massive giveaways. So things like if they cover their mouth, because you know, it's like our brain subconsciously trying to suppress these deceitful words mm. or even if they like they touch their nose they say that you know that actually more blood flows to the nose they call it the pinocchio effect so if a, someone scratches their nose it could be an indication of a lie or if they rub their eye they pull on their ear or the other one is if they sort of scratch their neck or if they literally put their fingers inside their collar it's almost like they're trying to release a bit of the pressure to let some of the some of that lie out yeah absolutely after reading this book i realized i do the mouth cover oh, yeah. uh, quite a bit not when yeah, I'm I'll lying. Keep an eye out for that. <laughs> I've stopped doing it a bit now. <laughs> but not when I'm lying, but it's more when I don't really believe mm. what I'm saying, even yeah. though it's not necessarily an explicit lie, but when I'm not confident in, yeah. in what I'm saying or around the people I'm in and I'm half assing it, I'll just end up covering my mouth a little yeah. bit like that. It's one, another one of those books where it's sort of like it's 
Uh, very important to firstly understand what are you doing and how can you change it, and then also secondly to look at what other what are other people doing and try to analyze that as well. So number two for me is the most important thing. And where did this slip in for you? Didn't make my top ten. It would have been in the eleven to thirteen. That's for sure. Probably mm. in even probably could be between nine and twelve. Actually, yeah, yeah. Probably it could, it could have snuck in for sure. So I thought it was a really good book. It's uh, mainly on investing and a criticism you could say of intelligent investors. It's really specific to just financial markets. For this one, it's all about investment philosophy. So you, you can apply it to other things, not just. The, the finance mm, world and uh, you know risk in general so y- you can apply it to you know your career relationships or anything like that and I really think he's got the, a really powerful analogy of risk in general what he says is risk is actually not observable at all right you can't see what risk is you can only see what loss is and and the only time loss comes is when risk collides with a, a negative event. So there's a powerful analogy of say a building. So I'm a structural engineer. If I if I went out and had a few beers and then went to work and designed the building and forgot about everything and it was a piece of shit design, uh, when it's sun shining and rain and lollipops in the air and <laughs> you know a beautiful day, there probably isn't going to be a big issue. But the loss only occurs when the negative event comes, like mm. that big storm or that that earthquake and all of a sudden that building comes toppling down because it's not good with risk. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of our risk goes undetected and that we, oh, you know, in happy times, everything seems fine. And, you know, relating to investing, you set up your portfolio, everything's going up. If the whole market's going up and your portfolio is going up, that's great. You're not even, you're very blind to the risk. But when that first shock comes and the negative event comes, that's when all the risk gets exposed in one, one foul swoop. The other thing I really like from this book is the whole idea of second-level thinking. So your whole goal when it comes to getting uh, in in investing isn't to just get average returns. Uh, You want to do better than average. So that's not just investing in the stock market. That might be in your career as well. Mm. So if you actually want to do better than average, that means you need to apply thinking that's actually better than everyone else. So, second-level thinking is all about taking into account the second-order effects of your decisions. Yeah, basically, you, do, you just can't think, okay, these are the circumstances, this is what I should do. You need to also then think, okay, these are the circumstances, this is what everybody else is going to do, so then what happens after that? So, say, for example, uh, people might be thinking software developers are the future, the world is becoming more digital and more technological, I, I need to learn to code. That might be the first level thinking, but the second level thinking says, okay, well, yeah, technology is the future. You know, software developers are going to be very vital. We're going to need people to code. But if everybody's going, learning to code and just getting very good at that one niche skill, there needs to be someone to manage all those people. So instead of learning to code, I'm going to learn how to manage people. Mm, I really like that one. Another one might be, if you say, if your long, long-term goal is to become a CEO, you might think, all right, to become a CEO... Um, most people are going into get an MBA to get the skills to become a CEO, but CEOs have obviously got really scarce skills to get where they are, and there's so many people who are doing MBAs to get there. So, you know, second level thinking might be all right. MBA might be a good strategy to get skills, but there's uh, the whole consensus believes that. So then MBAs are way overpriced. So that's probably a bad decision. 
hang on, no one is out there writing a book interviewing all CEOs how they do it. Mm. There's no one in that area. So I'm going to go there and write a book as my strategy to become a CEO. Yeah, it's very interesting. That was way off just the top of the bed. <laughs> I think it worked though, yeah? Yeah, no, definitely. And obviously, it applies to the investing side of things as well. So if you think, okay, the, the company's earnings are going to fall, we should sell. But then if you think, oh, the company's earnings are going to fall, but not as bad as everybody else thinks. So whilst the price, everyone's already factored in that the price is going to drop, but maybe if there's a pleasant surprise that it doesn't fall that much, maybe we should buy it. Yeah, because in the book, uh, it also talks about all the, the, the problems that we have in human psychology, like greed and envy and all these irrationalities that make us buy things that are way away from their intrinsic value. And this is where all the opportunities are. Yeah, another another investing one is, you know, the stock price is going up. Everybody thinks this is a, is a good company, so let's buy it. That's the first level thinking. But the second level thinking is saying, look, the price is going up. Yeah, it's a good company, but it's not a great company. And because everybody's buying it, it's actually overpriced, so let's not buy it. Mm. Mate, the way you've been speaking then is... No, like, I should get uh, it in my top 10. Yeah, <laughs> you were getting G'd up then. <laughs> you love this book. Uh, yeah, I could probably drop um, some of those 8 to 10 range out and slot this one in a yeah. bit higher up. Nah, yeah. Good man. <laughs> so number one for you, mate. What yeah, mate, my big number one, which was uh, your number 10, was Originals by Adam Grant. Mate, I definitely um, I loved this one and it's definitely been my favorite book of the last six months uh, and probably my favorite book since reading Laws of Human Nature. I thought it was just uh, a very good outline of two different approaches to the world and then how can you actually take one of those approaches. So he talks about the two paths to success are conformity and originality. Both are very valid. Both can get you to eventual success, but in very different routes. So conformity is effectively following the crowd down conventional paths. So you're doing what's always been done. Uh, and if you follow this path, it's obviously a proven path to success. And if you work harder than everybody else, you can achieve success at the end of that path. Uh, a different approach to success is taking the road less traveled, having some kind of new, fresh idea, trying to make things better and achieve uh, an original path to success. So it's uh, obviously more risky to try and be original, but uh, it's definitely a different path that you can take to success. Yeah. Now, I do really like this book. In just spelling out the two different roads, you can probably get a better under understanding what road you're on, what road you want to, want to go on mm. and how to go there. So I really like how Adam Grant talks about the whole idea of revolutionary leaders and how we're very inaccurate about our stereotypes of what they are and actually how they ended up leading. So we always assume that they're these major risk takers and they don't suffer from fear or anxiety. Mm. But every single time they questioned their decisions as they went as they went forward, um, they didn't go full steam ahead to tackle the world's problems with confidence and boldness. They're just like everybody else. Yeah, a couple of examples is like uh, Michelangelo painting the Sistine Chapel, one of the greatest works of art of all time. And we think, you know, Michelangelo, he was just this artistic genius and he thought, this is my vision. I'm just going to go out there and I'm the man to paint the Sistine Chapel. But actually, Michelangelo thought, I'm not a painter, I'm a sculptor. Uh, when the Pope asked him to do it, he thought, no way, I'm getting the fuck out of Rome. He actually went to Florence for two years. It wasn't until they tracked him down and said, come on, mate, come and paint this thing. Mm. So it's, uh, it's a very different, you know, 
uh, way of doing it. You think these guys are just the masters. The same as like say another example is Steve Wozniak at Apple. You know, he's built one of the biggest companies in the world, this tech revolutionary giant. We think, okay, Steve Wozniak was just the dude who was going to quit everything and, and commit to building Apple. But really, Woz actually was, he was working at Hewlett-Packard and he was really just sort of tinkering with Apple on the side and he thought, I'm going to work at Hewlett-Packard for the rest of my life. If Apple takes off, that's great, but I'm still going to keep my job. And it wasn't until you know Jobs and Wozniak's family almost had to force him into taking that revolutionary step. Yeah, I don't think it's in the book, but it's the same with um, Steve. Uh, it's the same with Mark Zuckerberg, from what I understand. When he was at university, obviously started Facebook. He didn't go out there and quit university to pursue Facebook. He actually stayed there for the additional year mm. and waited until it actually got enough traction to fully commit to it. So that was one of the the, the things. It was a real eye opener. Uh, the other thing that I really liked is, firstly, uh, you need to triple the amount of ideas you generate. So people might think, oh, I don't have any good ideas. I can't create an original idea. Uh, the issue is probably that you don't have good ideas. It's probably that you're not having enough ideas and that you need to try a whole bunch of different things and one of them might eventually work. So he you know, goes through a whole list of things like how Picasso had, uh, what did Franz Johansson say? 55,000 works of art. Oh. And most of, most of them were shit, but a, a, a small minority of those turned out to be masterpieces. And a majority of those didn't actually happen. <laughs> yeah, because it's a made-up number. Because <laughs> it's a made-up number. <laughs> the same as like Einstein. He's got these two or three papers that shifted the whole world's paradigm, but he actually published 248 different papers and most of them had very minimal impact. So it's that idea of going out there and, and doing a whole bunch of things and eventually that idea that doing more things will lead to better things. So like rather than just thinking, oh, I'm going to pick one thing and try to make this the best quality possible, it's actually that quantity eventually leads to quality. So it's really cool to you know, know your why and get really G'd up about revolutions and all that. But he, he talks about how some things are really counterproductive about mm. what the movement was. So for example, Occupy Wall Street most of the US were all about, you know, the whole idea of the movement. And it literally is like 99% of people would be, you know, affected by what they're saying. Mm. Um, but they just went about it the wrong way, yeah? Yeah, so if they were tempered in their radicalism, then everyone would get on board and you know, yeah, we're pretty sweet. We agree with this crew. But they just went wild and just started, you know, uh, occupying, sitting on the street, camping out and all that. And it was a little bit too extreme for the rest of the population. Mm. So they alienated themselves and were very counterproductive to the movement yeah i remember like i went on for a climate march of uh, four years ago or three years ago with the movement in, in paris i was all about it and then but all of a sudden i was marching with people a lot more extreme with me and it was uh, attacking and doing chants about people who eat meat and all of that so it was like <laughs> so i felt very awkward there and i probably won't go on the march again yeah. even even though you know we're, we're all about the same thing yeah exactly and uh, one more idea from the book uh, that I thought was really interesting was immersing yourself in a new domain. So another way to bring original ideas about, and there was a study of all the Nobel Prize winners uh, from 1901 to 2005. And the study obviously needed two groups. So one group was the top of their field scientists. So people that were bringing revolutionary new ideas, they were ultra high achieving people. And the second group was one level above that who were ultra-high achieving who also won a Nobel Prize. So both of them very, very, very similar in terms of their academic pursuits 
and in terms of the new revolutions they were bringing about. But there was one that was slightly better in terms that they were able to win the Nobel Prize. And they found that the Nobel Prize winners, compared to their you know, ultra-high-achieving peers, were actually twice as likely to play music, seven times more likely to engage in some kind of art, uh, 12 times as likely to do writing, and 22 times as likely to do some kind of performing. So it's interesting to think that, you know, you might think, oh, I'm the top scientist in my field. The way to get to a Nobel Prize to get better is to dedicate all my time to science. But it was interesting to see that the people who took that next step were actually playing music and doing art and doing writing and doing performing. So very mm. interesting. Yeah, very interesting. It just shows the value of, uh, you know, whatever field you're in, you might be working, working, working 50, 60, 70, 80, 80 hours a week and that's it. Uh, it shows the value of actually maybe doing something on, on the side that's got nothing to do with your normal work, pursuing something a little bit more creative like music or comedy, improv or anything mm. like that. And you actually, uh, you know, counterintuitively going to probably go after what your original goal is in mm. a more effective way and probably enjoy the whole process as well. Yeah, very nice. Yeah, so that was Originals by Adam Grant. I was a uh, definitely a big fan of that one for me. Okay, number one for me is... Easy Way to Control Your Alcohol by Alan Carr. Yeah, mate. Number two for me uh, and a, a very close number two as well in terms of, in terms of the uh, tangible everyday impact would definitely be one of, the, one of the best, most important books I've read, I guess. Well, yeah, would that be your number one in terms of um, um, you know, direct, obvious uh, you know, in yeah, ROI? It probably would be in terms of very, very specific everyday things. Yeah, I'd say, yeah. So we're in... June now, so how long has it been? Just five months? When exactly, did you your- exactly. First of, yeah, for, last drink was uh, uh, 31st of December, New Year's Eve. So mm. from 1st of Jan to 1st of June, almost dry except for one drink. Yeah. Well, let's, uh, let's break down this ROI a bit in terms of like, well, finances, how much you reckon you save? Yeah, well, probably normally drinking, uh, it wasn't that I was you know drinking uh, three drinks every night or anything. It was probably maybe twice a week, like say a Friday after work, and then maybe once on the weekend, and it's probably between three to eight drinks on those times. So probably, what does that make it? You know, probably twenty to fifty bucks plus probably once a month a full blowout, like a full big night out, like a hundred, hundred, hundred twenty bucks of drinking plus a kebab on the way home. But uh, yeah, you know that, that's finances. What about in terms of confidence? And this is, might be counterintuitive for people who are drinkers, right? Who um, might think that alcohol is key when you go out to feeling comfortable. Do you feel more comfortable now you're still not drinking when you go to a social event? Yeah, definitely. I think it's almost like a shift, uh, a shift in perceptions as well. So obviously, uh, at the start, I was thinking that in order to get confidence, say to you know whatever it is a networking event or some kind of fancy dinner or whatever it is, you know you have a couple of one or two drinks just to loosen up, just to lubricate, just to give you that confidence to be able to go and talk to people. But really it's uh, what Alan Carr says is that that's sort of eroding your confidence because then you're fully reliant on having those one or two drinks before you can go and talk to someone. So you couldn't talk to someone fully sober. That was one of the big reasons that I originally picked out the book and it had a massive impact on me. So, you know, I've, I've started drinking again and all that. But, um, you know, it's the idea when you're 15, 16, you start drinking at parties or whatever you might start drinking. A lot of the time it is because you're getting over this little awkward social interactions and then uh, before you know it, you're actually relying on alcohol at parties, 
to get you past these social interactions. And, you know, it's a bit like sticking an ostrich sticking their head in the sand, right? You're inhibiting yourself from just a a general interaction with another human being. So, you know, you're really providing yourself a massive disservice for, for this reliance. And in a lot of ways, it's actually quite sad that you have to resort to this um, for, for a lot of people, it's the opposite sex. They're freaking hopeless unless they've got mm. their six beers down. Yeah, exactly. Because uh, you think that you've got no confidence to be able to go and talk to someone unless you're, you know, well and truly on that nice zone of, you know, enough buzz that you feel like you can go and talk to someone. Because it, it is a pretty scary thing to go and talk uh, talk to a random person, mm. uh, you know, who you you think is, you know, better than you or more attractive than you or whatever. So it is a it is a big step. And then having to rely on that probably means you're probably never going to do it without it. Well, it's a skill. Yeah, it's a skill you're never going to learn. If you're always relying on alcohol, you're never going to put yourself in that position where you're, all right, you get to figure this out and, uh, you know, actually, you know, be with people and, and converse with the opposite sex or whatever, uh, you know, like you naturally would have to. Yeah. Mate, the few other ones that he had in the book of, you know, reasons people uh, tell themselves is like, you know, just a you know one a glass of wine or a beer after work to relax after a after a hard day, but so it really means that you've got no efficacy or no ability to then just relax on your own without having that that drink to to relax you. Mm, absolutely. So we're not going to go through all the, the mm. things now, but um, anyone who wants to control their alcohol, if you're someone who's you know drinking a little, little bit more than you you think you should be or you'd you'd like and you've uh, lost control and you want to ha- in, increase your overall self confidence and lose all your reliance on uh this thing then we really recommend that you go back and listen to the episode i think this is one of the better episodes that that we uh we did we actually got a lot of um a lot of people have messaged in and emailed and we've spoken to letting us know that they've they've really got full control Mm. over their use of alcohol right now yeah it's very nice to to hear from people both you know in person from people we know directly but also you know, digitally from people who email in and say this is a pretty powerful episode. So I was glad we were able to do that. And it sort of sneaks up on you in that, you know, obviously the 1st of Jan 2018, we did uh, the easy way to stop smoking. And, you know, I was not a smoker. So it wasn't, I wasn't reading it to stop smoking, but I was reading it because I thought, you know, we'll do a good episode on it. It might help someone. Same with this. I thought, you know, I'm not an alcoholic. I'm not getting, you know, plastered every every night or I'm not like drinking to excess on too many occasions so I'm not really reading it for myself I'm I'm reading it to do the podcast on it specifically and maybe it will help somebody else but it sort of just crept its way in there Alan Carr worked his magic to to weasel his way into my brain and really shifted it which I think um, we were able to obviously do through the episode as well to you know just be open to it listen to the full thing Mm. and see what happens you don't have to you know quit everything overnight but just see what you think yeah just see what you think and have an open mind it's just a different perspective on on what alcohol is and i'd probably use a different analogy that it creeps in the head i think it just kind of opens the mind to something that's uh objectively true that you've never seen before as opposed to someone you know it's it's, there's no tricks or games in it at all yeah and it almost plays into some of the other things we spoke about earlier in the episode in that you know it just becomes uh, a way of life it's just the thing that everybody does and we're sort of almost conditioned by society to think these things and believe these things and this is just a completely different perspective that you probably haven't thought about before mate so that brings us to the end of season three mm, another another year another 
Another year. <laughs> yeah, that's it, mate. It was good. Another year and another season. Loving it, mate. You looking forward to the next season? Most definitely, man. So as, uh, as we said, uh, we'll take our uh, usual month off mm. uh, and then we'll, we'll come back with a bang with five big juggernauts. So they're obviously very, very big, very well-known, very popular books uh, that we're going to drop in, in July as our regular juggernaut month. Absolutely. Very exciting. Um, yeah, we're just going to let all the listeners in on another decision we're about to make. So there might be an opportunity soon for us to get ads on the podcast. Uh, we've probably got different viewpoints on ads. Me personally, I'm leaning more toward having ads for the podcast as I think uh, if we invested it back in, for example, we're both looking at write a book, You know, we could put all the revenue to actually going away overseas on a trip just to uh, write the book and uh, explicitly or, you know, we might do an overseas trip where we can use it um, to, you know, go to New York and interview all the people there. Or we could do, it, for example, some personal development stuff like a Tony Robbins smacker or anything like that. Um, and, you know, just pay for all the books that we buy, uh, equipment and all of this kind of stuff. And the cost of ads in my brain is like, you know, that some people out there... Uh, would put us in the same category as some of the other podcasts and, you know, it might cost our growth of the podcast long-term. Yeah, definitely. So we've done three full years now uh, with no ads. It's just been for us out of pocket in terms of the, uh, you know, buying books and obviously the the time costs and bought, buying a, a whole bunch of new equipment about 18 months ago. So everything's been very much self-funded where we both just put in a, a set amount each month. Uh, and recently, there have been some people getting in touch to uh, potentially offer, you know, partnerships and, and, and sponsorships. And so, it's something I think is a very, very, very important decision uh, to go from no ads to ads. So, it's something we're going to be thinking and, uh, and probably duking out very hard, uh, but we definitely want some of your feedback and input as well. So, I think there's probably a few, a few ways to, to think about it. Uh, some people might think, um, it's fine, you know, you guys are uh, working hard and it, it could be good to get a bit of uh, reward for that and then also, as you say, mate, channel that back into a project we do which is probably the next big project is to write a book. Mm. Uh, another way of thinking is, you know, it's a, you know, it's a sellout, these two guys, that they've just been building up and now they're just going to cash in uh, or another way of thinking is that, you know, maybe some people think, oh, how good is having a podcast with no ads? You know, I personally, you know, Joe Rogan and... Tim Ferriss, we've got eight minutes of ads, I just skip it all. Uh, but then the episode is completely, you know, it doesn't deter from my experience. Once I've set it up and skipped the ads, the episode itself is unaffected. Maybe some people think it's a really, really good thing to have a podcast that doesn't have ads. So there's all these considerations that we've got to think about. So our decision is basically going to come down on what you think. Uh, so I don't know if it's in any of those buckets we just put out or it might be in a completely different bucket. Mm, something but, you might not have thought about. But if if people are listening to us because we are different to the others who don't do ads and if once we put up ads, it'll piss everyone off, please let us know. Mm. Or if you're in that boat where you think um, you know, you've know you listened to us for a while and you, you're happy that we're giving enough of our time to actually put out some value for you and you think that we should be doing it, then please please let us know either way. Yeah, basically, we're as you said, I'm I'm probably more resistant to it, and you're probably more open to it, uh, and it's something that we got to think about. But we definitely want your feedback, and we'd love to hear from you guys. Just email in. Uh, our email is podcast 
at whatyouwillearn.com. Just email in your thoughts, as you say, either responding to some of the things that we've suggested or some thought that you've had completely different or basically, what are your thoughts? Should mm. we do it? Should we not do it? What do you reckon? Yeah, absolutely. So, love that. Um, probably one little piece of more information. They are extremely well aligned mm. with yeah, the that's podcast. Yeah, that's a big one. It's not just a, uh, something like, obviously, like say, um, Zip Recruiter uh, sponsors a lot of podcasts where they just pump out a lot of ads, but we don't really do things about you know, a business podcast about how to hire people. So it doesn't really make sense for us to do ZipRecruiter. It'd be something here we're completely at about and it, it does align with us. So thank you everybody for listening. Uh, as you said, man, we had an absolute ball for season three. We There's a lot more people listening now and we're getting, I think, more emotive emails coming in, which is like, it's hard to describe. It, it's a really big deal for both of us. It, it means a lot. We're, we're actually, you know, impacting some people's lives and the effort we're putting in, it's actually helping some people in what they do. Yeah, most definitely, man. It's, uh, you know, especially at the start where you put something out, you sort of see a few people downloading it, but you don't really know who's listening or what they're getting out of it. So, it's we always love hearing from people, whether that's in a in a review or just, you know, send us an email and say, what do you reckon? What have you, what have you learned? What's some of your favorite apps? Uh, we'd love to hear from you. So, that's it for season three, everybody. We hope you all enjoyed it. Uh, If you want some more What You Will Learn in the break, we're releasing our top 10 episodes of all time as selected by us, whether they be our book reviews or our interviews. So head to whatyouwillearn.com slash best to check it out.